Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Yes, here we are again on Sunday and it seems that Mooney Goes Wild on Sunday has pretty much become a bird programme. Would you agree, Niall Hatch? Well, it certainly seems to be shaping up that way and I'm all for that. You know me and birds, Derek, I love them. You love your birds, do you not? We're going to be talking about Archaeopteryx and dinosaurs and the fact that dinosaurs are now officially birds. Well, it's been talked about for a long time, but it's now official. Will you just tell us a little bit about Archaeopteryx being the first bird, that missing link, if you like, between dinosaurs and birds, and then we'll come back to it later. Archaeopteryx, one of the most famous fossil creatures ever ever known, ever discovered. Really interesting thing. And, and yes, as you said, often thought of as being the first bird or the prototype bird. We have a, a few specimens actually recovered, um, mostly from uh, slate quarries in Germany, or the area we now know today as Germany. Mm. It would have been a very different part of the world back then, back 150 million years ago, which is when Archaeopteryx dates from. Now, the name Archaeopteryx, it comes from two Greek words, which is archaeo, like meaning old or ancient, and pteryx, which begins with a P-T. The P is actually silent. So that means a, a wing or, or relating to it to feathers as well. So maybe they actually should be pronounced Archaeopteryx without the, with the P being silent. Ancient wing. And uh, it was uh, it was actually found in, in this German quarry just two years after Charles Darwin published his book on the origin of species, where he put forth his idea of the, the theory of evolution by natural selection. Uh, so that was a time when that was a really hot topic. And it, this Archaeopteryx bird was seized on as proof that actually birds had evolved most likely from dinosaurs because it showed both characteristics of both modern birds with flight feathers on its wings and these feathers on, on, its, on its body um, but also some very reptilian characteristics too so it had a bony jaw with teeth in it mm. like a lizard might have today and also then a long tail with bones in it as far as I know it would have been about the size of a magpie and somewhat similar perhaps in general shape and structure although we don't have any idea what colour it was because that wasn't preserved in the fossils but really an, an amazing creature and yeah, I wish I could have seen one in the flesh Well I've seen one of these fossils with Richard at the Natural History Museum in Berlin now you speak a bit of German, Niall. So how do you pronounce the word U-R-V-O-G-E-L? Is it Urvogel or something like that? Urvogel. Urvogel. Like oh, that. Urvogel. So the, well, the V is pronounced, probably Chinese Germans listening, but the, the V like that is pronounced slightly as an F and Urvogel, which would mean original bird or prototype bird. But that's the name for it in German at any rate. Archaeopteryx will be speaking with Professor of Paleobiology at the University of Oxford, Roger Benson, a little bit later on. And he will be telling us once and for all that birds are definitely dinosaurs. You do not want to miss it. Let's go to the Wicklow Mountains now and say hello to ornithologist Eric Dempsey. Hello, Derek. How are you doing? Broadcasting from your car, I believe. I am broadcasting from my car up in the Wicklow Mountains, sitting in out of the wind, making sure that I'm not getting any wind onto the microphone at the moment. So, yes, it's uh, it's it's great to be out and about, and it's great to be actually talking to you when I'm out in the field. It's wonderful. Well, Eric, I noticed during the week a lot of birds, a lot of early bird song, and I did make a recording of a great tit. Have a listen. This is on Leeson Street. And I started following it. It was flitting from tree to tree. And I was wondering, was it actually holding territory? Yeah, well, the chances are it could well have been holding territory. Uh, At this time of year, uh, firstly, birds are beginning to look at holding territory. And it's been so mild, uh, there's insects out, so... Birds begin to sort of get into breeding mode uh, much earlier when it is warm and sunny. I mean, in my own back garden in Wicklow, we have, you know, birds already in song. I had a wintering chiff chaff uh, down in Dungarvan uh, about a week ago. Now, chiff chaffs are a summer visitor, but we get small numbers of them coming in in winter. And this bird was beginning to sing. Now, it's January. This is sort of a bird that doesn't really come into Ireland until May, and it was beginning to sing. But it was warm. There was insects flying. So birds get this sort of push that... Oh, wow, spring must be on the way. There's food out there. And if you remember, Derek, some years ago, we were covering robins that actually had young Mm -hmm. in January. Mm -hmm. And that is because there was a supply of food. You know, so birds, if it's warm, if there's a plentiful food supply, and like as I'm 
you know talking to you here there's insects flying around me in January I've seen um, I've seen bees I've seen wasps in January and in December so we're having and experiencing a very unusual warm winter and that may well be prompting birds to begin to hold territories and I'm sure Noel will, will agree with me they say that January is the best time to put up nest boxes in your garden because the resident birds like blue tits and grey tits they're beginning to suss out the best breeding areas so they will begin to look at nest boxes in January with a view to using those in May so birds are beginning to to feel spring-like at this time of year. That's absolutely right, Eric. Yes, I've been seeing actually just in the last week or so uh, a blue tit actually flying around my garden, looking through nooks and crannies in the, in the back wall and in the ivy. Uh, so it's, it's not nesting yet, but it seems to be prospecting for a nest site, certainly. I've had uh, gold crests and pied wagtails singing already, which I would not have expected normally to hear at this time of year. So certainly something's in the air for sure. Absolutely. And we're not the only ones noticing. Comedian June Rogers, we all know and love June. You hear her with Joe on Live Line on the Funny Fridays. June stopped me a couple of weeks ago in the car park here outside of the radio centre to tell me about a robin which was singing in her garden some weeks ago. Hello, June. Tell Niall and Eric your story, if you would, please. Hello, Derek, and hello, gentlemen. Good evening to you. <laughs> this is a tala bird talking to you now. It was a couple of weeks ago <laughs> I was letting my little doggy out before she went to bed and it was around 11.30 at night and I couldn't believe it. I opened the back door and the garden was full of birdsong. I actually sat out for about half an hour. It was such a mild night and I just couldn't believe that, you know, this time of the year that you would have that kind of birdsong in the garden at that hour. And funny enough, I spoke to my niece a couple of days afterwards and she lives like in Dundrum which is a fair few miles away from me and she noticed it. we just started talking and I said to her about the birds and she said she was putting something in the bin around 11 o'clock that night and she could hear all this bird sound and she, she just thought it was wonderful and it was a robin that June had recorded you can hear it in the background there because she sent it on to me Eric Robins are one of those birds that will sing throughout the winter. So that's that's the first thing. I mean, there's three reasons why birds sing is to, you know, obtain a territory and keep a territory. And so during the breeding season, birds want to hold a territory. The second thing is to attract a mate. So it is usually only the males that sing. And the third reason why they sing is to, you know, retain the status quo. So like your neighbouring robin will recognise each other. So if one dies during the night well then they'll know there's an extra bit of territory to be taken over but in winter time birds aren't breeding so an awful lot of birds don't need to hold territory but robins are one of those species that will hold territory throughout the winter so robins will always sing throughout the winter they are unusual in that the second thing is, of course, because we live in cities, I'm thankfully now, uh, I'm born and bred in Fingda, so I was used to Robin singing at night down in the countryside where it's dark, where I'm living now near Newcastle and Wicklow. It's, it's in almost pitch black at night and you don't get Robin singing. And what happens is, if you can imagine, that if you're going to hold a territory, you will sing at dawn and you will sing at dusk. But then the street lights come on. So just as you're about to go to roost, suddenly it's bright again. And it's like the, the first glimmer of dawn. And robins are one of those birds that's among the bir first birds to sing at dawn. So suddenly this poor robin, tricked into thinking that it's dawn, starts singing again because it needs to hold a territory. So it's called the false dawn and it's something that is impacting many okay. robins that live in cities because you know what you need to do is you need to rest you need to keep warm you need to sort of try and get through the night so a lot of these birds are using up valuable energy particularly in winter time holding territories singing in this false dawn so maybe we need to look at street lights do they need to be on all night things like that i don't know it's a big question but june that is most likely yeah. the cause of why you had a robin singing in your back garden i have robins in my back garden in wicklow yeah. but they don't sing at night because it's dark yeah because it's actually the first time i ever heard it like and listen just talking about robins they're very friendly little birds <laughs> what, what yeah they really are because you're down doing the garden and they're right beside your hands 
I love the thing that people say, oh, you know, Robins are, you know, so friendly and they are, oh, I've, I've met someone who once said, oh, I have this Robin who's coming into the garden and, and comes into the kitchen for the last 10, 12 years. I feed him at the kitchen table. Robins only live about one or two years. So Robins basically are using you, June. They're not friendly, really. They're sort of going, <laughs> OK, June is in the back garden. She's digging up worms. That means I don't have to work very hard. I'll go up and look look really cute and she'll go oh look isn't he gorgeous and you know that that i will feed him the worms i'm digging up they they don't don't be fooled by them yeah. robins are one of the most aggressive birds uh, you can imagine they they will fight to oh, the really? death two males okay. will fight to the death and when they're tick tick ticking at you they're not going oh good morning june isn't it a lovely day they're saying so what are you doing in my territory june this is my territory unless of course you're going to be digging oh, up food really? for me then okay. then i'll be your best friend but sure, listen, I'd probably do the same myself if I wanted something nice. <laughs> but listen, where, where do they sleep? You know, like we've loads of little house sparrows and I know they, they live in the hedge out in our garden. But I wonder where all the other little birds, they just disappear. Do, do they all have nests or do they sleep on branches or... Nests are only used for uh, the breeding season, you know, so a nest really is only for laying your eggs, incubating those eggs and rearing your young. So they don't use nests per se in, in uh, wintertime. What they're doing is they're sitting in your hedges, they're sitting in the trees, they're, they are buried in the ivy. And, and that is the reason why it's so important to leave your hedges, you know, leave your habitats in people's yes. gardens because... These birds need that, not just for food uh, in the winter, because an awful lot of our native trees and hedges provide berries for them, um, but it provides deep shelter where they can actually roost out of the wind, out of the rain and in relative safety. So that's what they're all doing. They're all going to, to roost. Okay, they're all heading listen. off into trees and into hedges all around you. OK. And listen, I'm just wondering, I've, something that I always keep saying I want to do, but I haven't done. But I wanted to know, um, would you guys know, if I wanted to join Birdwatch? Nile is your the man there, June. Sure, oh, I can't miss that opportunity, Derek. No, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, June, we'd absolutely love you to have you as a member of Birdwatch Ireland because as a, as a charity, uh, that makes a big difference to us. The, the money we raise through our membership goes to support our conservation work. But also yes. then the more members we have, the more clout it gives us. So, so please do join us. You get a lovely magazine called Wings that comes out to you every quarter. Uh, you get uh, email newsletters. There's a lovely children's magazine called Bird Detectives, a welcome pack with information all about your garden birds and, and posters and everything in there. And you get to take part in our Irish Garden Bird Survey as well. So I, I think that you'd really enjoy that given your interest in the robin there in your garden. It's great to learn yes, more about what them. I love, I love the birds in the garden. I, we get so much joy and I think a lot of people in the last couple of years have realised what's in their garden, you know, because yes. you know, life quietened down there for a while. As I say, to give back to what, you know, wonderful uh, the wonderful little birds that we have in the garden, you know what I mean, to um, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Great idea. Well, June, thanks very much indeed. June, by the way, I have a question for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Are birds dinosaurs, yes or no? Yes. Oh, correct. You're <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say, how would I know? No, they're not. How could they be? Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, June, thank you very much. Talk to you later. Bye. Take care. Bye. There goes June Rogers. Well, look out your nearest window and there is a probability that you can see a dinosaur. That's right, folks. Those birds are literally dinosaurs. Until recently, we didn't know where birds came from, but that debate is henceforth settled. It has now been established that birds are just a type of dinosaur that happened to survive up to the present day. And so, the sky and trees around us is buzzing to the sound of dinosaurs. Roger Benson is Professor of Paleobiology at the University of Oxford, and he's here to tell us more. So, Roger, is it true? Are birds really dinosaurs? Yes, it's true. It's been a long scientific journey, but at this point, scientists are close to 100% convinced that birds are just a type of dinosaur. Convince me. <laughs> well, there's lots of birds alive today, um, and they're really interesting animals. They're the main things we see out of our window every day, and it was a long-standing scientific mystery, really, where they came from. We've always known they evolved from some kind of reptile, and we've always known that dinosaurs are quite similar to them. For example, dinosaurs walk on their hind limbs, um, with their forelimbs free, so they're bipedal like us. Um, but really the thing that clinched it is discoveries of fossil dinosaurs from China over the last few decades that really showed lots of bird-like features in some dinosaurs, 
including things like feathers, details of their skeletons, what they're doing, so how they behave. So some dinosaurs sleep in bird-like ways, for example. And we just have this enormous wealth of evidence from the fossil record now. So when you say that some dinosaurs sleep in bird-like ways, what exactly does that mean? I can't actually tell you that I've ever seen a bird sleeping. Yeah, this is quite an amazing thing. And even if you had seen a bird sleep, um, how do we know how dinosaurs slept? Um, So normally when we study dinosaurs, we're studying their bones. And normally those bones aren't nice and tidy. They can be jumbled up by um, flow of water or other things and mixed up during the process of fossilization. But every so often we get some insights into how a dinosaur actually behaved. For example, if it was buried by ashfall during a volcanic eruption, similar to the people preserved in the Roman city of Pompeii, that type of fossilization shows us that dinosaurs slept with their legs tucked under their body, their arms tucked up against their sides. Um, This is really similar to how birds sleep. Unlike birds, they have tails, so their tail wraps around the body of the dinosaur, a bit like the way a dog might sleep or something. But this is amazing. We've also been able to see that they nest their eggs, they brood their eggs very similar to birds through this type of preservation. That's really interesting because I always had the impression that most birds just lock onto a branch, kind of hunker down, if you like, and that's it. Yeah, so a lot of birds sleep that way. So if you see roosting birds in a tree, that's the case. Um, But if you see sleeping birds on the nest, um, then really they'd sleep this way. Even if you see them outside of the nest, it's sort of interesting to see what they're doing. So you may have seen ducks sleeping and they'd be standing on one leg to keep themselves off the ground. They have their wings folded up against the side. They have their head tucked up against their body, sort of wrapped around so it's facing somewhat backwards. Those are all things we see in sleeping dinosaurs too. So if that's the case, did dinosaurs actually sleep in nests? We have some fossil dinosaur nests containing eggs. And as far as we can tell, dinosaurs nested on the ground. So that's similar to some birds today, but um, not similar to most birds. We don't have a lot of evidence for them, including sticks and branches in their nests. Um, So they're sort of uh, like a dirt pile with a depression in the middle where the eggs are laid. Um, So we know that they laid their eggs in various scrapes and depressions in the ground. So they have a similar shape to a nest, um, but different to a modern day bird nest. I don't suppose you could tell me if they snored or not. Yeah, well, (laughs) wouldn't we like to know? This is one of the mysteries. What did dinosaurs sound like, you know, if they were making any noises at all? Uh, We know what they sound like in Jurassic Park, uh, sort of a mixture of roaring and grunting. Actually, this is one of the things we have no evidence about whatsoever. It's a mystery. Well, you've been studying them for quite some time. What's your gut instinct? (laughs) Yeah, so it's a good question. Like, what instinct should we have about how an extinct animal sounds? Given that birds are dinosaurs, birds might provide us some inspiration for how dinosaurs could have sounded. But when we think of bird sounds, we're really thinking of bird song. And that's specific to some living groups of birds, but we really don't think dinosaurs would have been capable of that, or at least we don't have evidence. Um, Even the quack of a duck, which is not a beautiful sound, but it's a really iconic sound, um, that requires quite uh, special structures in the voice box of the duck. So we have no idea at all, but we'd like to know. But birds have a syrinx, whereas we humans have a larynx. Now, would you have found the bony structure in the fossilised remains to indicate that there would have been a syrinx there? Yeah, so this is interesting. If you take a present-day bird, you get a surprising amount of bone around um, the upper respiratory tract and the place where sound's being made. So some birds have a bony syrinx, so the voice box is actually bony. We don't have any fossil dinosaurs with a bony syrinx, so we've never seen a dinosaur voice box preserved in the fossil record have to sort of take our inspiration from ecologically similar animals today. So dinosaurs are particularly different to birds in the fact that they can't fly and they're quite big animals, so they're more similar to many mammals today. Um, So it's possible dinosaurs were emitting sounds more like mammals than birds, uh, but we really can't tell. But some dinosaurs did fly, no? Yeah, some of the closest dinosaur relatives of birds could fly. And this is really interesting, because what it means as scientists is we ask, well, when should we start calling them birds? Are we happy to call them birds as soon as they can fly, or do we want them to be much more bird-like than that? So I'll give you some examples of why this isn't an easy question to answer. So some of the earliest flying dinosaurs, they have wings, feathery wings, quite similar to bird wings, Mm -hmm. but they also have big wing-like structures on their hind limbs. So they have arm wings and leg wings, and this is not present in any present-day bird. 
And we have a lot of questions about how they flew. For example, were they gliding? How much were they flapping their wings? Could they have flown upwards or did they just drift downwards as they went along? Um, so these are really strange, different things, different to anything that's alive today. There are also some flying dinosaurs that are closely related to birds, but have a very different wing that's actually more similar to a bat wing. Um, so when we start to look in the fossil record, we find these crazy things. But really, those flying dinosaurs are in the minority of dinosaurs. But yeah, when you get to be one of the close relatives of birds, you start to look much more bird-like. In fact, that's one of the pieces of evidence that convinces paleontologists that birds are a type of dinosaur. Well, I remember being in the Natural History Museum in Berlin and seeing Archaeopteryx. So is Archaeopteryx the first bird? Yeah, so this is debated and it's sort of like what's in a name. I would be very happy to call Archaeopteryx the first bird. The reason is, among the most bird-like of dinosaurs, Archaeopteryx is really unique. In If you look at the details of how feathers are arranged in its wing, it's really very similar to a present-day bird. So I think we're seeing lots of evidence of highly bird-like traits in Archaeopteryx. It's also different to present-day birds because it has teeth, for example, instead of a beak. It has a long, bony tail. In birds, the tail skeleton is extremely short, for example. And it lacks some of the specializations of birds that allow really sophisticated flight. But, you know, this animal, Archaeopteryx, was discovered in the 1860s and the people studying it really observed very bird-like features in an animal that's fundamentally sort of dinosaur-like in other aspects of its skeleton. Um, do you know, in fact, the discovery of Archaeopteryx prompted um, paleon one paleontologist, Thomas Huxley, to suggest that birds were a type of dinosaur, even in the 1800s. Um, but that wasn't really a mainstream opinion until relatively recently, the last couple of decades. Well, it was the first time I had any indication at all that birds might have come from dinosaurs when it was introduced to me in the museum. I was there with Richard, one of our colleagues. Niall. Roger, it really is very interesting stuff. And ever since I've been um, a small child, I've been fascinated both by dinosaurs and by birds. And I know quite a few people who've come to an appreciation of birds and become bird watchers or conservationists because they were sparked by dinosaurs. There always has It's always struck me there's been a similarity between them. Now, whenever I go to schools to talk to children, or indeed when I talk to adults, uh, I, w I will ask, um, uh, you know, what is a bird? What makes a bird a bird? What are its defining characteristics? And so the children will almost always come back and say, they can fly. And then, of course, you say to them, well, many birds can fly. Not all birds do fly, though, if you think of penguins and ostriches and so on. But lots of other creatures fly, too. You have bats, you have many, many insects. So flying is quite commonplace. So then they'll say, well, they lay eggs. And that's true. Um, all female birds when reproducing do lay eggs, but so do many, many other creatures. Eggs are also commonplace. Fish lay them, many insects lay them, even some, a small handful of mammals lay them. So then they will say, well, they have beaks. And you say, yes, that's true, but so do many other creatures. So turtles have beaks, squid have beaks, even uh, the duck-billed platypus has a beak. And it all comes down to the one defining, the one unique um, defining characteristic of birds today is that they have feathers. And of course, now you're saying that we know that there were dinosaurs that have feathers, and it's all part of this continuum from dinosaurs through to birds. So is it fair to say that in the history of, the, of our planet, as far as we know, the only creatures that ever evolved feathers were actually dinosaurs? And that's still what we see today. So... We have more than a thousand species of dinosaurs known as fossils, and only you know a few tens of those have fossilized feathers. And that's because feathers, they decay, um, they don't always preserve in the fossil record. It's actually quite rare that we find them in fossils. So we have a long list of dinosaurs that really we can't say whether they had feathers or not, um, because they may have had feathers that simply weren't fossilized. Now the same applies to lots of other extinct species. So we're busy as paleontologists sort of checking on our list of who had feathers, who definitely doesn't have feathers, and who might have feathers. So that's the context. So far, dinosaurs are the only animals we know of that had feathers, um, in addition to present-day birds, which we also believe are dinosaurs. Of course, with present-day birds, they're unable to fly without their feathers. If a bird doesn't have feathers in its wing, it's not able to fly. So it stands to reason, therefore, that feathers must have evolved before flight did, which would suggest to me, therefore, that the dinosaurs that first evolved and first sported feathers were using them for something quite different. It can't have been for flight. There must have been a different purpose that they evolved, and then through happy accidents of, of natural selection and evolution, that then gave them tools that ultimately allowed them to fly. So do we know why dinosaurs would have evolved feathers in the first place? 
Yeah, right. That's a really good point. Um, feathers must have evolved before flight, because otherwise how could you use them to evolve flight? Now, the fossil record supports this as well. So we have a wide range of not non-flying dinosaurs, so flightless dinosaurs, that are relatively closely related to birds and have extremely bird-like feathers, especially on their arms, I um, mean, on other places on their body, like their tails. So what were they using their feathers for? Well, one thing is there's a feathery body covering to these animals, and we think that's insulation. So we think, like mammals and birds today, they were warm-blooded animals generating body heat, and that feathers were partly responsible for keeping that heat in. It's a bit like if you're spending a lot of money on electric bills uh, to heat your house, um, then you want to make sure your house is insulated. So that's one of the purposes of feathers. But these feather arrays on the arms and the tail, they're kind of fancy, actually. And what's the most likely explanation of those is that they're using them as display structures. So in present-day birds, feathers do more than just allowing them to fly. They can also be very colourful. They can be on places in the body that aren't involved in flight, like you could get a feathery head crest, for example. And it really seems that dinosaurs were making the most of this. Who were they displaying to? Well, other dinosaurs in their species, so they might have been part of mating displays, similar to present-day birds. And also to things like predators, you know, don't go after me, I'm actually really fit. If you go after me, you're not going to catch me, and this impressive display is the evidence of that. Uh, potentially also camouflage. Um, so lots of potential different uses before the origins of flight. Feathers are the most colourful natural substances that I can think of. They come in such an array of different shades and hues and iridescent tones to some of them and all different pigments. It's really amazing how, how elaborate they can be. And also, as you said, how they can be used for camouflage as well. Do we know anything about colour in dinosaurs? Has any of that been preserved in the fossil record? Were they, were they just sort of brown and grey or green creatures like they're often depicted? Or may they have been a lot more colourful than that? Yeah, this is a really good question. When I was a child, I was desperate to know what colour dinosaurs were, and I'm sure it's the same for lots of other people. But people would say, oh, you know, scientists will never know the answer to this question. Colour simply does not fossilise. But actually, sometimes colour does fossilise. This is an amazing thing. So you can think of a feather as being essentially a blank canvas. It could host all kinds of colour displays or camouflage or whatever you like. But how could we know? Well... Some of the types of colours you get in present-day birds and some other animals are hosted in a special type of cell called a melanosome. It's called a melanosome because it hosts melanin, which is a pigment compound in present-day animals and extinct animals. Now, the funny thing is melanin actually fossilises quite well. It doesn't fossilise as well as bone, but it decays extremely slowly and it can often be fossilised. It doesn't fossilise with the colour that it had in life, um, but by looking at the chemical structure of the melanin, scientists can tell roughly what colours they are because black and more dark colours of melanin, they have a different shape in the melanosomes to the shape of melanosomes that host more reddy brown colours. So we start to get some idea of the sorts of colours dinosaurs might have. The thing we can be the most confident about is what patterns dinosaurs had on their feathers uh, using this melanin because... The melanin fossilises well, so where there was colour, we get a streak of preserved melanin, and where there was not, we get a streak of nothing. So we learn from this that some dinosaurs have stripy tails, for example. Um, some dinosaurs have patterns on their wings that are quite interesting. Or some, many dinosaurs are kind of mottled um, or have sort of brownish colours to them. The thing that we're really missing we'd like to know about are the other types of colours that are present in birds and some other animals today and they include some of the really bright colors that you get in things like carotenoids and also things like structural color like iridescence and those things can be harder to tell from the fossils or sometimes impossible to tell um, so we have a sort of incomplete picture of dinosaur color um, but we can know a lot more than i think scientists believed when i was growing up yeah, I think the University of Bristol were involved in some research on fossilised remains found in China and that you're talking about that stripy tail. I remember reading about that. It was Sinosauropteryx, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm sure I'm That's it. You've got your pronunciation. Oh, I get correct, 10 out of 10. Well done, Derek. Anyway, Niall, sorry. 
<laughs> the received wisdom on, on, until now, at least, has been that um, uh, at the end of the Cretaceous period, around 65 million years ago, there was some mass extinction event, quite possibly a large um, meteor that crashed into uh, the area that's, that's now we know as near Mexico uh, and wiped out all of the dinosaurs. Now, it seems, however, that birds were the only dinosaurs that survived that mass extinction event, as far as we can tell. Um, are there any theories on why that might have been the case? What was special about them that meant that they could somehow weather that storm in the way that their other dinosaur relatives couldn't? So you can think of the extinction that killed the dinosaurs. Instead, you could think of it as the extinction that killed all types of dinosaurs except for birds. And one of the interesting things is if you were alive just before the mass extinction event and you looked up in the trees, there would have been loads of birds, possibly even sort of the level um, of bird abundance that you see today. So in many ways, the world in the trees would have been similar to how it is now. The meteorite strikes the Earth. All of the other dinosaurs become extinct. But there are also big groups of birds that are around alongside the dinosaurs that also become extinct at the same time. So really, this is interesting because birds do survive, but most birds don't survive. So we even have this question, well, why did modern birds survive, whereas many other bird groups became completely extinct at that time? Now, we don't know the answer to this. One of the difficulties is we'd like to know who's around just before, who's left just after, and what were they doing? We think their ecology is relevant to this, you know. Maybe if you're nocturnal, you're more likely to survive. Or maybe if you eat detritus out of the bottom of lakes, or if you eat seeds or fishes, you're more likely to survive. These are all hypotheses that have been put forward. It's even been suggested that present-day birds were just smarter than other dinosaurs, and that allowed them to modify their behaviour in the wake of the extinction and survive that way, so by being inventive, for example. So at the moment we're in a situation we have lots of possible explanations, but we don't really have the evidence that we need to pull them apart. So this is a sort of intriguing scientific mystery. Um, I'm optimistic we could know the answer one day, and I find some of those explanations more inspiring than others, but it's a question that we fundamentally don't know the answer to. I just find it endlessly fascinating, I have to say. I, mean, I have so many questions that we'll probably never know the answers to them, but I, I'm just curious, did these ancient bird dinosaurs, did they migrate? Did they form big flocks? Did they have courtship displays? How did they behave? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole like hidden world to us now, but hopefully through, through this research and as more fossils are uncovered, we might be able to paint perhaps a little bit of that picture. I'd be really keen to know what they got up to. Yeah, it's been suggested that some birds from the time of dinosaurs, so some Mesozoic birds might have migrated. It's really hard for us to tell, though, because often we only have a few bones. To tell if animals were migrating, we might want to have evidence of the same species in two different places. Even then, we wouldn't necessarily know, because it may be just one species that occurs over a really wide range, like many bird species do today. But, you know, paleontologists and other scientists are motivated by questions. If you think you have a lot of questions in your mind, my mind is constantly seething with things I would like to know about the world of dinosaurs and early birds. You know, wouldn't we like to know? Well, they did lay eggs. We know that, don't we? Or are we sure of that? Well, so this is the interesting thing. Dinosaurs laid eggs. We know that for sure because we have fossil dinosaur eggs. Some of them have um, the parent dinosaur brooding the nest, on top of them. Some of them have fossil hatchlings preserved inside of the egg just prior to hatching. So we know that those dinosaurs laid eggs. The problem is we don't know which dinosaurs might not have laid eggs. It's easy to assume, well, we have some dinosaur eggs, so dinosaurs laid eggs. But how do you demonstrate that a dinosaur didn't lay eggs? Because they wouldn't leave evidence in the form of eggs, because they lack eggs. Um, One of the really interesting pieces of research Um, that came out in the last couple of years is research that was done at the American Museum in New York reporting some fossil dinosaur eggs but they were different to other fossil dinosaur eggs um, because instead of having a hard mineralized shell so similar to a chicken's egg it has a hard shell they had a soft parchment shell around them Now, this is really interesting because it suggests that some dinosaurs laid eggs that were more similar to many lizard eggs with a soft parchment shell than they were to present-day bird eggs with a hard mineral shell. And that raises the possibility that there's a lot more variation than we know. You probably think, you know, birds lay eggs, mammals have live young. 
Well, actually, if you look at a group like lizards and snakes, you get a mixture of species that give birth to live young and species that lay eggs. Now, it's possible, but we can't know for sure at the moment, it's possible that dinosaurs were similar to that. So they could have varied a lot in whether they laid eggs or not. Um, the one thing we know for certain is that some dinosaurs laid eggs. What is hard to rule out is that no dinosaurs uh, gave birth to live young. That's still a possibility. Well, the plesiosaur, which is what the Loch Ness Monster was thought to be, if it exists, my nephew, who's fascinated by dinosaurs, really does believe in the Loch Ness Monster. At any rate, it was believed to have given birth to live young. Yeah, well, it's good to have debates. So the Loch Ness Monster one, I guess I don't have much to say about it, but it's um, something I found fascinating. Oh, come on, come on, come on, Roger, say (laughs) something about it. I guess I should say something confident about it. I'm not sure that Loch Ness Monster exists, but I would be delighted if it did exist because I would love to see something, one of these extinct animals, I would love to see one in the flesh. (laughs) So, yeah, this actually, what we need to think about is, like, what is a dinosaur? So I study a wide range of different types of extinct reptiles. So similar to reptiles today, uh, where there are lots of different types. So lizards, for example, are different to crocodiles, are different to turtles and tortoises. Similar to that, if we go into the past, there are lots of different groups of reptiles. So when I say dinosaur, I mean one particular group, and that's the group that includes animals like Triceratops and Brontosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex and Velociraptor and birds. Among dinosaurs, we don't have any evidence of live birth, but in some other extinct groups, so some other fossil reptiles like plesiosaurs, which are giant extinct sea reptiles, and we have quite strong evidence that they gave birth to live young. And this is really fascinating, particularly in the case of plesiosaurs, because there is one plesiosaur fossil um, out of many thousands that preserves evidence of how it gave birth. And this animal um, is from the late Cretaceous. It lived about 90 million years ago. And inside of its rib cage, there are the remains um, of a smaller individual of the same species, kind of jumbled around through the process of fossilization. And those remains are relatively pristine. There's no evidence that they were scraped about or there's no tooth marks. There's no evidence of digestion on the bones. So we're fairly confident that that's the baby um, preserved within its mother. Uh, And one of the reasons that one's really interesting is it's not just an animal that gave birth to live young. Actually, its offspring were relatively large. So if you think about our offspring, a human baby is quite large compared to the mother. I know many mothers out there will understand from direct experience how large our offspring are and how difficult it is to get them out. And that actually turns out not to be unique to mammals necessarily. So we also find it happening in plesiosaurs, this other group of extinct reptiles, But bear in mind that they're different to dinosaurs. Although they lived in the same world, um, they were uh, diverse in the oceans, whereas dinosaurs were diverse on land. Let's bring in Eric Dempsey. Eric is fascinated with this subject too and knows a lot about feathers. In fact, we made a documentary together about feathers. Eric, your thoughts on this? Well, it's just fascinating. I think Niall has asked just about every question of Roger that I I was going to ask and I've been itching to ask since I was a kid. Uh, Like Niall, I've been fascinated by the concept of birds like in your your back garden as being dinosaurs. It was only when I saw a cassowary that you really realise just how dinosaur-like a bird can be. And anybody who's ever seen a cassowary, they're, they're a large flightless bird from Australia with a large knob on the top of their head and they really do look dinosaur-like, there's no question. The question I would love to ask of Roger is that when I saw Archaeopteryx as a kid, it had a bony tail and it had teeth. Is there any fossils of dinosaurs that have both feathers but are beginning to lose the teeth or beginning to lose the bony tail? And we'll just preface that by saying we actually mentioned it on the programme last week, Professor John O'Hanlon from UCC. One of the first things he pointed out about birds was the fact that they don't have teeth and they need to take in grit into their gizzard in order to help them digest food. The answer is quite an interesting one. So shortening of the bony tail and loss of teeth are two features of birds. Most dinosaurs have teeth. Most dinosaurs have a long bony tail. But the earliest fossil birds like Archaeopteryx have teeth and they have a long bony tail. The ancestor of all present-day birds, so if you say like a cassowary and a sparrow and an eagle, if you go back through their family trees, through their evolving lineages, you get back to some point where you're looking at the ancestor of those animals. 
So all of living birds have an ancestor that lived about 100 million years ago, whereas Archaeopteryx is about 150 million years old. Now that ancestor of present-day birds, as far as we can tell, had no teeth, did not have a long bony tail, and it was alive at the time of the dinosaurs. Now, it lived alongside lots of other extinct groups of birds, and it turns out some of those groups had teeth, some of them didn't. And when we sort of get into the details of the evolutionary tree, it turns out among the extinct groups of birds, teeth were lost many times. And it's also the same as we go back into other types of dinosaurs. So there are various groups of dinosaurs that lack teeth altogether, and they include these things called the ornithomimosaurs, which are the ostrich dinosaurs. They lost their teeth and have beaks. And the oviraptorosaurs, they're the egg thief dinosaurs. And actually, if you look at their skull, they look more like a parrot. They have a very robust, deep, toothless jaw, which would have had a really hard, keratinous beak on it in life. So actually, losing the teeth is something that dinosaurs do over and over again. And it's just one of the things that happened on the line leading to present-day birds, but after to the time of Archaeopteryx. When it comes to losing the tail, that happened fewer times, and it happened quite early in bird evolution. So just after Archaeopteryx, which has a long bony tail, you start to get birds that have this short tail, short bony tail. Now, you tend to think of losing something as, you know, you've just lost that thing, it's not doing anything anymore. But the tail of birds is actually doing something quite important. Like the short bony tail of birds is basically, it's a thing that the long tail feather array of some birds is attached to. So all birds have an array of tail feathers, all flying birds use them to some extent in their flight. And you can think of the bird tail in some birds as being essentially like a third wing. So actually when you shorten the tail, you're losing the long bony tail, but you're gaining this capability of a sort of third wing, which is the tail feather array. Um, so that's really interesting, and that happened quite early, whereas loss of teeth happened quite late. The other interesting thing, if I remember correctly, about Archaeopteryx was that just at the bend of the wing was a, a sort of a hooked claw, uh, and it was thought that that may allow the bird to climb or the Archaeopteryx to climb trees and to glide from one tree to another. And you, you see that in the Hoetzen, which is a bird found in the Amazon, but only uh, as a chick. They, when they emerge from the egg, they have this little claw at the, the tip or the, the bend of the wing, which allows them to, to climb into trees. Is this a feature that you see in a lot of the fossilised birds? That's also something that's lost quite early on. So... Dinosaurs have claws on their hands. Some dinosaurs may have used those hand claws um, to help them climb trees using their arms and legs together. That's similar, like you say, to a baby Hoetzin today, uh, and it's still present in Archaeopteryx. Shortly after Archaeopteryx, we get basically the, the complete loss of claws on the hand, so sort of the full development of the bony wing of birds by that time. But there's a trade-off here. So you lose that claw on the wing, and that might stop you from being able to clamber up a tree using your arms and legs, like Archaeopteryx may have been able to do. But what you gain um, is you gain this structure. One of the fingers of birds is mobile, sort of independently of the other fingers, and it hosts like a little feather array. It's called the alula. And what the alula does is it helps to control the flow of air over the wing during flight. And that's one of the things that makes birds very precise and sophisticated flyers today. Now, Archaeopteryx, because it had these hand claws, it couldn't do that. Um, but shortly after Archaeopteryx, you get the loss of hand claws, but the gain of the alula. So we think they're really gaining something when they lose their hand claws. Uh, so that's an interesting evolutionary story to do with the origins of flight in birds, too. You're also, um, if I'm right in saying that uh, after the, this massive asteroid impact, it was only the smallest dinosaurs that survived. Uh, the larger dinosaurs went extinct. So birds basically came from these small dinosaurs. And I, I note your favourite bird is the inaccessible island rail, which is the smallest flightless bird in the world. Do you look at this little rail and think, God, this might be what? one of these early dinosaurs looked like why the inaccessible island rail why is that your favorite bird so i'm really interested in the size of animals i'm interested in dinosaurs so it's natural for me you know one of my interests is like the biggest dinosaurs who's the biggest how were they able to be so big it's obvious why that's interesting but it's also super interesting to think about you know how small can animals be there's this interesting fact that's often overlooked, which is not only were the biggest dinosaurs really big, but also the smallest dinosaurs were quite big. 
So the smallest adult dinosaurs we have in the fossil record weighed about half a kilo, so about 500 grams. Now this is actually very big compared to present day birds. So if you look out of your window, you have to look for quite a long time till you see a bird that weighs half a kilo. Um, most birds are much smaller than that. In fact, the average size for birds is 30 grams. So I have this question in my mind. I have no answer to it so far, which is why were dinosaurs simply not able to be small? But as soon as birds appear, basically, they, they're allowed to be small. So it's impossible for a dinosaur to be the size of a sparrow. But birds are routinely this size. But some paleontologists have suggested that's one of the reasons birds could survive the end Cretaceous mass extinction event. Um, because generally small animals, like the ancestors of mammals um, and lizards and things and birds, survived this mass extinction event on land. I love the inaccessible island rail because it's full of contradictions. That's one of the reasons. Um, it's a really small animal. It's a sparrow-sized flightless bird. So, you know, I have no idea why it is the inaccessible island rail is allowed to be the size of a sparrow. Um, but no other flightless dinosaur... Um, before the origin of birds seems to have been able to do that. So one of the reasons I love it is it's tied up in this scientific question I have. The other reason is it's just incredibly cute. If you look up pictures of this animal on the internet, it's a super cute thing. It's a rare animal. It lives on an island. Islands are really interesting in terms of the strange evolutionary occurrences that you get there. Um, so I just, love, I just love everything about this animal. I think it's really cool. If that's the smallest, is the largest Titanosaurus... There's a group of dinosaurs called titanosaurs. They are four-legged, long-necked herbivorous dinosaurs, similar to Diplodocus and Apatosaurus. And the titanosaurs include the largest dinosaur species. Now, there's a bit of debate when you get to asking who's the largest dinosaur, um, because many of our dinosaur fossils are just based on a handful of bones. It's quite hard to tell how big they are. So we might be able to tell, gee, this dinosaur must have been huge, but we can't be very precise about how big. One of the giant dinosaurs about which we know the most and can have one of the most reliable ideas of how big it was precisely is this titanosaur called Patagotitan. And Patagotitan, so far as we can tell, weighed about 70 tonnes. And this is massive. The biggest mammals we know about weighed maybe 15 to 20 tonnes. So Patagotitan was three or four times as big as the biggest mammals that ever lived. Well, we know that birds happen to defecate when they fly. I couldn't imagine that thing dropping <laughs> on top oh, of yeah. me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think if you had one in a zoo, you, uh, whoever's looking after it would have a lot of shoveling to do. That's right. Niall. One thing that occurred to me there when you mentioned about the inaccessible island rail, actually, just, it just popped into my head. One of my favourite facts about that bird is that on the island where it lives, it has evolved to feed mainly on flightless flies, which just shows how amazing islands are as these sort of hotbeds of evolution and, and, and innovation. Uh, but it really is, it really is uh, amazing stuff. I just, I've I, I, got to be questions popping into my head now for the next few weeks, I think, about how all this works and how birds are. I think, you know, I, I work for Birdwatch Ireland. I think we may change our name now to Dinosaur Watch Ireland and, and have our our garden dinosaur watch survey and all of these things because it really is interesting I think that the more people understand about where birds and other animals come from and that, that long lineage that they have that they stretch back so many hundreds of millions of years it kind of brings it into focus to me more just how precarious their existence is today because we're facing the, you know another mass extinction event uh, in the same way that the, 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 the majority of dinosaurs died out in a mass extinction event now we're facing one that is caused by, by humans it's caused by climate change and by pollution and by destruction and habitat loss and all of these things that we humans cause to the planet and all the effects that we have. Um, do you think that because of these adaptations that the birds will be able to survive? Do you think that um, the age of the birds is coming to an end or are we only getting started? This is a difficult one. As a paleontologist, what strikes me, and it's tragic in some senses, is we can know so much about the past. Not as much as we would like. We can't answer all our questions, but we can know things. But I can't know anything even a hundred years into the future. I could know what was going on a hundred million years in the past. This is very striking to me. It's very hard to tell what the future of birds will be. We know that a lot of bird populations are in decline, but we know that some bird species are doing really well. It seems unlikely that birds will become completely extinct but at the same time we know they're under pressure we know their roles in ecosystems are under pressure as well you know when you simply have too few of something it's no longer really playing its role in the ecosystem we know from the geological past 
that you can go from having a group that's everywhere doing lots of things, like dinosaurs, and apparently doing extremely well, you know, on a relatively short timescale, then becomes completely extinct in some kind of global catastrophe. The difference between the geological past and the present day is right now we can watch and monitor and gather data and understand what's really happening. So I think in some ways the answer is that it's up to us. Uh, but we should take very seriously the possibility of major extinctions that have huge effects on ecosystems. Those things are not going to happen overnight. That's the good news. You know, in the geological past, they've happened on the timescale often of thousands of years. If a meteorite strikes the Earth, then potentially much faster timescales than that. But, you know, the natural process of extinction is something that we'll have time to watch as humans and make our choices and decide what we want to do about it. Well, it's fascinating stuff. So thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It was nice to talk to all of you. It really was. It wasn't it, Niall and Eric, I have to say. A lovely man. Now, a uh, couple of things absolutely. jumped to mind. Did you say flightless insects or flightless flies, Niall? I said a flightless fly, yes. So Inaccessible Island, which is part of the, the Tristan de Cunha archipelago, a very wide-ranging um, uh, group of islands, very remote islands in the South Atlantic. Um, I remember being fascinated by the fact that this tiny little flightless rail, the Inaccessible Island rail that we were discussing, uh, is on the island. Obviously, its ancestors must have flown there, so they must have had the power of flight. We know that this group of birds, the rails, has tended to disperse to offshore islands. Uh, these are usually water birds. We have the water rail here in Ireland, the corncrake that some of the listeners will know is a member of that group. And perhaps more visible, the moorhen and the coot are members of that group as well. So we know that its ancestors must have arrived on that island. And we also know there that um, insects must have arrived there too, because there's a species of flightless fly there that the rail feeds on. And it's become obviously an, an evolutionary advantage, a survival advantage to both of these species to lose the power of flight. Because the rail didn't need it because there were no predators there that it had to escape from. So it was better to stay in the grass and scuttle around. And the theory is that the fly uh, lost the power of flight as well because... Because um, if they went airborne, a gust of wind in that in that uh, that region of the, the the South Atlantic, where the weather can can be quite extreme, would blow them out to sea and they would die. So there's a, there was a, a I suppose a selection pressure there that would favour the flies that had the weakest power flight and the birds that had the weakest power flight, and then they eventually lost it completely. So that just fascinates me. You can't call it a fly if it doesn't fly. Well, you can because it's that's the family it belongs to. That's the group. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, interesting. Eric, when it comes to birds pooping while they fly. Why do they do it when they're in flight? Well, not all birds poop when they're in flight. A lot oh, of birds some poop. some do. I've, I've had many as an occasion where <laughs> I've had to wash my clothes and have a shower. I, I, I do remember um, on one occasion on Grafton Street many years ago watching a man dressed impeccably. He was like in an Armani suit and a herring gull decided to let go from a height and it was like someone threw a bucket of paint over this poor man. <laughs> the whole street stood in shock. It was just unbelievable. So yeah, birds do poop from from a height but not all birds you know you, you'll get a lot of birds that will sit and perch and they will they will do their poops there I mean if you're looking for barn owls and things you will often be looking for a, a perch that has uh, not just pellets but but the, the white white droppings of birds so it's also a, a good way of getting you know if you're being chased by a sparrowhawk and um, by pooping you know if there's a sparrowhawk directly behind you it may well get a you know a splash of, of poo into the face it might just give you those extra few seconds to to get away so flight and being fearful you know animals will often poo when they're fearful purely to give them the advantage firstly they lose a little bit of extra weight that they're carrying but also you know if you're being pursued you poo it goes into the face of your pursuer it might just give you that extra few seconds to get away Thank you, Eric, broadcasting from his car. Look out for the birds in the Wicklow Mountains. Thanks also to Niall Hatch, who's at his home, also in County Wicklow, to June Rogers in her home in Dublin, and Roger Benson, Professor of Paleobiology at the University of Oxford. That's all we have time for today. Make a date for tomorrow night, Mooney Goes Wild, part two. RTE Radio 1 from 10pm. Until then, visit the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Mooney Goes Wild is presented and produced by Derek Mooney.